Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Mariner Books, publisher of Land of Big Numbers, the debut story collection from Deping Chen. Land of Big Numbers traces the journeys of the diverse and legion Chinese people, their history, their government, and how all of that has tumbled messily, violently, but still beautifully into the present. Pulitzer Prize winner Jennifer Egan calls it, quote, gripping and illuminating. Land of Big Numbers offers intimate glimpses of the seductive power of state control, the Faustian bargaining it requires of its citizens, the landscapes and lives it forces them to discard, in exchange for material prosperity. At the heart of Deping Chen's remarkable debut lies a question all too relevant in 21st century America. What is freedom? Land of Big Numbers, the debut story collection by Deping Chen. Available now from Mariner Books. Everybody. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name's Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles. Happy New Year. Happy 2021. I hope you're doing okay. I hope you had a good holiday. I have a great episode for you today. Great way to start off the new year. George Saunders is back on the program for a second time. He is celebrating the publication of a new book called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain in which four Russians give a master class on writing, reading, and life. It is available now from Random House. And this is nonfiction. A Swim in a Pond in the Rain is a book about writing. It's a book about reading. It's about what makes great stories work and what they have to teach us. So if you happen to be out there and you're thinking of trying to write a book this year or just trying to write a story, this is a great episode for you. If you are simply a devoted reader and you've found yourself wondering at turns over the years why certain stories grab you more than others, this is a great episode for you. This is an excellent and very fascinating conversation with one of the masters of the form. Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and its new release, Art is Everything, by Ixtamaya Murray. In her funny and propulsive new novel, Murray offers us a portrait of a Chicana artist as a woman on the margins, written as a series of Instagram essays, Snapchat freakouts, 
and rejected Yelp reviews that merge confession with art criticism, Art is Everything shows us the painful but joyous development of an artist whose world implodes just as she has a breakthrough. Best of all, listeners of this program receive a 20% discount on Art is Everything by Ixta Maya Murray or any other title from Northwestern University Press. Just use the promo code PPL20. Again, that's PPL20. And this offer is available at nupress.northwestern.edu. Again, that's nupress.northwestern.edu. So having said that, let's get to today's guest without any further delay. He is George Saunders, and his new book is called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, the subtitle of which is In Which Four Russians Give a Masterclass on Writing, Reading, and Life. Let me just explain briefly what that means. Throughout the course of A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, George Saunders includes stories by Russian masters like Tolstoy, Chekhov, etc., to illuminate his lessons and to offer a demonstration of what it can look like when storytelling is done at a very high level. So I am just thrilled to get to share this conversation with you now. Here he is, folks. This is George Saunders. You know, I was unfortunate because I didn't have to work outside the house, so I taught from home and on Zoom and um, had a great class. And so it's it feels kind of like, in some ways, a kind of um, surface acceptance of it, and then a sadness kind of growing week by week underneath. Because like I haven't seen my parents in a year, haven't seen one of our daughters in almost a year. Um, so I, I think just like everybody else, I'm trying to keep it under control by having good habits, you know, and um, uh, just just. I don't know. It's it's a real slow sadness that um, I'm trying to fight off. And so for me, the way I have always fought off sadness is by working. Uh, like if I can get a big task in front of me, I, I um, it just makes me happy. And I, I've I kind of gotten to the point where I stopped worrying about why. Like the other day, we had a, a big three foot snow here, and um, we we hadn't hired a plow guy yet. So I just thought, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna dig a footpath out to the road, and it's like 300 yards. So it's an insane thing for a 62 year old to do. But it was so fun, you know, just to have this kind of big job. So that's kind of how I'm, I guess, dysfunctionally uh, managing is just just working really hard. I, I hear you. I hear you. Like I kind of have gotten a little bit self-conscious about – I mean I've always been a creature of habit. I think a lot of writers are. But I've gotten to the point where like my routines have become uh, like kind of the, the extreme version of themselves during COVID. But I don't know how better to, to deal with – the situation than to, like you said, have good habits and just stick to them, uh, cling to them, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of an exaggerated version of always, you know, I mean, there's always shit about to go down and there's always, uh, unthinkable things happening. And so I, I guess, um, I think what's happening with me is I'm kind of getting to know myself a little better and just like, well, all right, I'm 62 years old, been, um, kind of neurotic and always been, uh, buoyed up by work energy and accomplishment energy. So it's kind of late in the game to wish for a different preset, you know? So, uh, I'm just trying to succumb to it. And, and, um, you know, and the thing is when I work hard and stay almost, you know, stupidly busy, I'm a nicer person. I'm more present. I'm a little more buoyant. So, uh, that's kind of what I've been doing. And then, you know, trying to just notice, um, well, trying to figure out what's going on in terms of the, you know, the, 
the change in our national mood and all that stuff. And so far, haven't, haven't been very successful, but, uh, you know, ready for it to be over. And also, so kind of like, I, I have a feeling it'll be many, many years before we sort through this and figure out who to thank and who to blame and all that kind of stuff. But but that was, you know, this Russian book was kind of a way to um, really, uh, you know how when someone's in labor or a woman's in labor, they say have a focal point. Uh, for me, this book was a really nice focal point because it's not topical. I mean, it's like the opposite of topical. And uh, just to go in my writing room every day and go, okay, look, I, everything is so confusing, but you can you can try to understand a Chekhov story. And by doing that, you're kind of – I felt like I was kind of uh, reminding myself that the mind is knowable. You know, you, you can know things. You can figure shit out. You can um, uh, sort of uh, celebrate a, a, a complex work of art. And, and the adjustment that that process causes in one's – mental state is actually a hundred percent positive you know and whatever else is going to happen in the world it sends you out there uh you know sort of invigorated yeah i feel like this is a very generous book and i think i you know i can imagine working on this amid all that we've been going through and finding comfort in it and just like having it be like a kind of refuge but i i just you know as a reader and a fan of your work uh, i was like yeah, this is going to be a book that a lot of people are going to be excited about because I think a lot of people who write or aspire to write want you to teach them how to write a story. <laughs> like that's an appealing idea. Yeah, and no. this book is robust. I mean, this is a 400-page creative writing lesson with you, and you really get into the weeds dissecting these stories, and um, there's nothing skimpy about it, you know, in the best possible way. So that was a thought that I had, like, this is a generous thing to do. And like, I can imagine like a mentally healthy thing to do amid all that we've been enduring. And then another persistent thought that I had, as I read was, I was thinking about your engineer, your training as an engineer. And I can't remember, we talked a long time ago on this show, um, about 600 episodes ago. <laughs> so it's been a while, but I can't remember how much we got into your your background, like your work history as an engineer. I think we touched on it a little bit, but I could not help but consider that as I watched you um, like diagram stories or, or out like break them down in outline, kind of take them apart and put them back together again. It just occurred to me that in your work as a teacher and your work as a writer, you are well served by your training as an engineer in a way that might not have been readily apparent back at the dawn of your writing career. Yeah. Thank, I, I'd say I'm served by it, you know, whether it's well served or not. I, I have, um, it, it's just the way I think it's, it's something about, um, being a little analytical, uh, and, you know, but I think in some ways it's, it's true to the form because if you are on page six and you're feeling something, it's not unrelated to those previous six pages it's all the whole thing really a story really is a setup it's a setup on a delivery just like a joke so there's some value i think in that but the other thing i've learned over the years of teaching is it's you know well this is another scientific principle you always have to know the limits of your study so you set up an experiment but part of your um your the integrity of the experiment is to know what where the biases are and what the limits are so for me, I, I've been reminded my approach, this kind of analytical approach, doesn't work for everybody. And um, so there's always students who just don't like it. It's too, it's too linear. Um, and they are working from a totally different energy. So in this book, one of the things that happened that was kind of interesting, you know, when you're writing a nonfiction, 
the first draft is always a little full of it. Uh, and then you work through that and you find a deeper truth. So in this book, what I found was th- what I really believe in as a teacher uh, are a handful of things that aren't really effort, you know, like show, don't tell or whatever. But they're more like, um, I guess, aspirations for a person for a person's mind state as he's working. So, for example, I, I found that for me, I should try to work in a zone about which I have a really strong opinion. So for me, it's sent, you know, certain, uh, a certain sound of a sentence I really like or don't like. I have a really strong, irrational, indefensible opinion about that. And that's where I do my best work. So one of the things I try to do at Syracuse is just make sure that people are guided to do the thing about which they have strong opinions. And it might not be sentences. It might be structural. It might be political. Um, so there are less, kind of lessons behind the lessons. And I think joy, you know, um, having some kind of robust fun as you're doing something is a pretty good uh, starting place, which it kind of runs counter to what we always hear. You know, we always hear that it's, it's torture. It's, it's terrible. You're writing well when you feel like jumping off a bridge. But at least for me, it's it's quite the opposite. Well, there's a great passage in your book where you talk about how little choice we have uh, about what kind of writer we're going to turn out to be. And you quote Flann- Flannery O'Connor, um, who said, that a writer can choose what he writes about, uh, but he cannot choose what he is able to make live. And you also, I think in a re- on a related note, talk about in your work as a teacher, trying to help your students find what you call, uh, in a kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, sort of way, their iconic space. And I think that all of these ideas are related, you know, and it's worth kind of exploring a little bit because... It feels like when writers start out, this is certainly the case for me, and I know um, both from reading you and having talked to you years ago, that we tend to start out trying to emulate our heroes. And we tend to usually, you know, a lot of us, uh, myself included, can kind of stay on that path for too long where you're trying to be uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald or Hemingway or whoever it is, Raymond Carver. You know, we're kind of trying to trying on other people's clothes, and eventually we have to get to the place where we are ourselves on the page. So. Can you speak to that a little bit, this idea of, of not having control of what kind of writer will t- turn out to be? Yeah, you know, for me, that was the big turning point in my life was to go from that state that you so beautifully described us now and the state I've been in since. And it's something like – and it's kind of lovely because really what you're saying is I don't know who I am. I don't know what charms I have. I don't know in what way I'm good. So I'm writing to find out. And like a scientist, I'm going to write a bunch of stuff in a bunch of different modes. And then I'm going to kind of take the signal maybe from readers or maybe from yourself as to which of those modes has the most life in it. And uh, that's different from, you know, the way we think of it is that we have to decide what kind of writer we're going to be based on our heroes and then do that. But so in some ways, it's a lip. I, I mean, I think it's beautifully like life because you might at 16 or 17 think I'm going to be this kind of person. Uh, and then you try to be, but the world doesn't respond to that kind of person. Then the next X number of years is spent trying out some different things and finding out which person the world responds to. And that's another way of saying, uh, which person is in most lively contact with the world, you know? So there's always, there's a bittersweet moment there where you go, Oh God, you know, um, people are liking this new piece. Uh, it's not what I had in mind at all. It might even be somewhat, you know, not offensive exactly, but somewhat disappointing to the writer of it. But that, to me, is the real uh, crossroads. You know, when you get to that point, 
you have to take the path that um, brings out the most lively writer in you, This, no matter what plans you had. You know, what it makes me think of, too, is uh, this moment that you describe in your own life and career where you were on a conference call at your old day job and you were bored. <laughs> I think you were bored and you were writing these what you would describe as sort of dark Dr. Seussian, um, like kind of jokey, like darkly funny poems, you know, in that kind of child nursery rhyme mode. And it was kind of a toss off, like you were just doing it to amuse yourself in a moment of boredom at your at your corporate day job. And then your wife happened to see them and you caught her reading them and she was laughing and you experienced an epiphany. And, uh, you know, that's worth, I think, talking about as well. Like what what was the moment of insight there? Well, I think it was, as you said, they were offhanded. I didn't have any investment in them. I didn't, I didn't have that. You know, there's always that little voice in your mind who's, that's comparing you to your heroes, like say F. Scott Fitzgerald, as you mentioned. Uh, that's, that's tough, you know? I mean, to, to say, I'm going to write this sentence and compare it with the great Gatsby, that's a, you know, that's a real buzzkill. Uh, but it also implies something weird about the method of construction, which is you're going to, you know, like go into your brain and manufacture a Fitzgerald-like sentence to describe your current life in Spokane, Washington, as a barista. And then, well, I, that's so artificial and contrived, you know. Whereas at that conference call, I was just farting around. I really it was just, um, I guess I would say I had no uh, shaping impulse. It was just sort of, um, I, I don't know, I, I overused the word joyful, but it was kind of a joyful impulse. Uh, the same kind of thing you do after a couple beers at a party when you're trying to make somebody laugh. just It's almost like from some storage place in your mind to your mouth in a, in a good way uh, without any mediation of shape. You know, oh, this doesn't sound like Fitzgerald. This does. It was just kind of a blurt. And that, I think, is still my goal, you know, to get something. And, and you know, I talk about this in the book, but it kind of supposes that there's something really smart going on in us b beneath the con the conscious level you know beneath the mediating level and that actually part of what we're doing when we're developing craft so-called is we're we're um facilitating that thing we're, we're we're making it easier for that thing to come out of the cave so in that moment it, you know I, I really was just playing around and i was accessing and this might be worth noting i was using a bunch of muscles i didn't use when i was quote-unquote writing so when i was writing i kind of my, my guy was hemingway at that time uh, or maybe joyce a little bit I uh, was become I would sort of become a little more, you know, classical in a pejorative way than I normally would be. My my diction would sort of try to sit up straight. Uh, I'd eliminate any trace of working class diction or humor. Um, and so the, the prose had very little to do with my actual experience. In this other mode, I just was, um, you know, trying tr almost like trying to get the needle to to budge you know the needle in the listener to budge and i kind of knew how to do that from years of being you know trying to be funny and trying to be um affable and so on so it's it's really interesting and i think with this book i realized how much you know if we can figure something out for ourselves ourselves as writers we really are figuring out something as people it's the same you know it's the same any any task that we do uh will lead us to certain insights about the, the mind and our relation to output and i think that's totally you know it, it goes very smoothly over into real life i think yeah there were a lot of moments in your book um 
where I found myself sort of stopping and thinking and underlining. And uh, one of the things, and you just kind of spoke to this, that you talked about is that you posited that we're at our most intelligent in the moment just before we start to explain or articulate something or write something down. And this is where you say great art occurs or does not. You know, it's like this this flash moment. Um, and I, like, it was one of those things where I was like, yes, but I couldn't quite fully understand why I was agreeing. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's a, it's kind of a mysterious thing. <laughs> it's kind of a mysterious thing that you're describing. It, it really is. And I don't, you know, I, um, in the book, I kind of tried to tiptoe around it a bit without reducing it. But, you know, I, I think about when I was in uh, high school, I was a really, you know, disinterested student, but we had a teacher named, her name then was, uh, Sherry Williams, and she's now Sherry Limbaugh, but she was our English teacher, and she was just a wonderful teacher, um, loved literature, and, and was really irreverent about it, and could really speak to a room of kids, and but also she she was quite um, disciplined. She, she didn't like you talking aloud in class, but if you could say something genuinely funny that would make her laugh, you kind of got a little forgiveness token, you know? So I noticed in there for the first time that there was some relation between getting her to laugh and the spontaneity of the utterance let's say so if i thought of a joke at 110 and didn't say it till 112 it always bombed and she she would give you this look like why you know why are you wasting our time but there was another mode where the the joke would arise and be spoken before i'd even mediated it and those always worked mostly mostly worked so i think there is something about this um now, the other thing is, you know, when you're talking about like how to write, you always reduce it. You always, there's no way to be properly respectful of how complicated it is. And I think all of us have to me, it seems like what we do is we make some conscious analytical structures and we do think about our heroes. But then on top of that, we hang the real flags, which are these spontaneous moments. So I, I think, you know, we always have to be careful. There just isn't a method. There are a bunch of methods and the talking about them, it's always kind of. I think of it a little bit as a victory dance in the end zone. You know, like if you write a beautiful story, you can just shut up, really. You know, you don't have to explain it. But there's something fun about it, the, the moment after where you discuss it and analyze it. And and for me, one of the things I've had to keep open in my teaching life is the acknowledgement that I don't really know what's useful to my students. I, I used to think I did, you know. Uh, now it's really – I don't think you can know that. And I think what you're trying to do is sort of – in a class like this Russian class that I used to teach – you're trying to create a vibe where everybody, um, whatever obstructions each of those 25 writers is experiencing, the conversation puts a little light on on that and or maybe nudges them out of it a little bit or maybe nudges them deeper into it. But it's very tricky because you're not – certainly isn't standing up there and speaking truth. You know, it's, it's more about creating a, a vibe in which people light up. Um, and that's, you know, that's really who, – who knows how to do that? That's really hard. Yeah, I mean, I think I can I can anticipate somebody sitting at home who's trying to write their first story collection, and they're thinking about how to find this quote unquote iconic space where they are fully themselves on the page, and they've really found like the you know the elusive uh, voice that we're all trying to find our own voice. Like, can you drill down a little bit more? I mean, it sounds like what you're doing is in your classes is you're trying to kind of present a menu of options to a degree to students and to help them find what works best for them. But you're all, you know, in, in addition to that, you're encouraging people to really look inward and um, like honor 
their own identities. You know, you talked about trying to scrub your own work of any kind of blue collar uh, vernacular or sensibility. I mean, this is the idea. We have to find a way to be ourselves on the page. Um, And it sounds sort of simple, but in practice, it's much (laughs) more difficult. (laughs) Yeah. You know, when I was an engineering student, I don't know if this is true, but we were told that when you're when they're making those um, highway tunnels out in the West through mountain, you, you come at it from two ends. Like you have two different crews working and then theoretically they meet in the middle of the mountain and finish the tunnel. So in teaching, I, there's kind of two things in, in workshop classes at Syracuse, which is just six people and we're reading student work in that mode. All I'm doing really is line editing, you know, just close line edits. And then also that will lead to talking about structure, you know, sometimes, but, but really, I mean, very, kind of in the same tone as this book, like how does A cause B? Is it better if B causes A? That's the most personal stuff. And I find that with line edits, you you can uncover somebody's voice or help them uncover their voice through line edits in a way that no amount of conceptual talk will let them do. So that moment when through cuts, somebody goes, ooh, that sounds like me. That's a really big moment. The other part of the tunnel is in these kind of what we call forms classes, like this Russian class, where, you know, kind of the... The starting assumption is, I don't know how this is going to help your writing. It might not. You know, it's certainly not the case that you're going to study Chekhov and just take those tricks exactly. Cause that, that doesn't work. So in these classes, it's more like, you know, if you were if you were a psychotherapist doing a 20 person session, everybody's got their own issues. Um, you might know what they are outside of class, but in the context of a class, you can't, you know, you can't personalize it. So I think what you're trying to do is just make a really enlivened atmosphere so let's say that you're you're stuck on endings you know as everyone is but let's say you're particularly stuck on endings um when we get to the ending of a Chekhov story that's going to be speaking to you particularly and if i teach it right it'll be it'll be um it won't be me telling anybody anything but it'll be asking the right questions and, and just trying to you know there's a feeling we've i've had in those classrooms and this is why i wrote the book where you know, you go into a class and you're as a teacher, you're nervous. You don't want them to think you're stupid or underprepared. Um, any sense of yourself as an authority figure goes away and you're just a guy in front of a bunch of young people who are smarter than you. Then um, so you're kind of planning a tap dance. You know, you, you've, you've got some jokes and, you know, then there's a really, I would say, sacred moment where in the th- thrall of the story that we're looking at, uh Somebody, somebody in the class says something really brilliant, and the whole class goes, "Oh!" And then it—it it, it just sounds a little corny, but the whole class kind of becomes one organism, and we're all looking for this answer, and it's we're working together, and we're throwing out ideas, and there's no teacher-student division, and that—that that is really great. And I'm 98% sure that when a class gets into that mode everybody is benefiting, you know, certainly not directly. It might not be six, 20 years, you know, before somebody feels the benefit, but there's something about the truth in that moment that I think really, um, speeds up the 20 or 21 individual journeys going on. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And then uh, I, I think like, uh, like one of the elemental questions uh, that I'm sure you confront in your classes, in your class, and you confront in this book that is of use would be of use to listeners is this basic question of what makes a reader keep reading. Uh, it's the kind of question that like we should ask ourselves, I think, on a daily basis. But somehow, I, I at least for my own part, I overlook this. But what does make a reader keep reading? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of those then questions where I'd go. My answer, correct answer, would be yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, and and the thing is, I, I mean, you, I think you can generalize. You can say there are certain things that do. I think just almost like, like they talk about laws of physics. There are laws. Like, like I think compression always helps. You know, like if you ever have read somebody who says the same thing three times for no reason, that that's taxing. You know, and you feel a little implicit disrespect from somebody who's doing that or like they just like the sound of their own voice too much there are things like that but i think the deeper level is this okay as writers uh we need to and we're actually really good at this pick up a random book in the bookstore uh, preferably one that's been praised and you suspect too much and you you pick it up and you start scanning you start reading it that's the magic moment like okay you read the first four words yeah, uh, you read us uh, the first sentence. So where are you at that point? Are you in or out? You know, and if you're if you're in, you're in for certain ineffable reasons. Uh, if you're out, same thing. You're probably not entirely out, but you might be hedging towards the door already. Um, that's a really amazing little almost meditative experiment to just read something and see what your mind does. You know, and and that and so then what happens is you kind of flip the mirror around and you apply that test to your own work. And the beauty of it is I think there really isn't, you know, a list of answers, but there are answers for each individual person. So, for example, I had somebody I used to do an exercise where um, I photocopy uh, the first page of five stories in some random literary journal, take off the name of the writer and pass them out. And I would just say, OK, we're going to read these and then rank them. And then I'd leave the room. And so the first thing was nobody ever said on what basis, you know, these were writers and they, as soon as they looked at it, they had an opinion. Then you come back in the room and I asked them to tell me what their ranking was. And then we debate a little bit. And uh, that's an amazing exercise, very simple. And you see that everybody has this crazy um, criteria in their head that they're constantly using. Like there's one person who said, I really hated number three because there's just too many plants in it vegetation you know he, he, something about the the um the sound of words describing vegetation really vexed him and he couldn't stand it you know so th- probably the 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 quickest path to voice is to say you know do a form of that exercise and just look at yourself allowing everything 
and go, oh, yeah, I really hate X. I, I'm really drawn to Y. And I think, you know, as is so often the case in writing, you don't even have to say it, really. It, it's the exercise itself will, will just reinforce your tendencies. Um, and then the kind of, you know, golden ticket is, I think when we pick up a book by somebody else and we're thrilled by it, it it's partly because that person has really, again, joyfully um, indulged their own preferences. It, it, it doesn't even have to be justified. Like David Foster Wallace, you know, he had that incredible kind of long-winded, virtuosic uh, voice that he knew he had, and he indulged it with incredible discipline. And what we love about him is that, you know, that that's what having a, a style that's what having a personality on the page is about is you know knowing at some visceral level what you do beautifully and then allowing yourself to enjoy it now that all sounds pretty good and um but it, you know maybe it leads us to something else we could talk about is i i've noticed that i'll get letters from people saying or in, you know or go do guest teaching and somebody will you know be really good at quoting back to me my aphorisms you know and 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 they'll say, yes, I'm a total believer and da, da, da. And then you read some work and it, it isn't maybe that great, you know. So there's there's also that uh, terrifying gap between the, the pronouncing of beliefs and the kind of um, cataloging of different approaches that we swear to use. And then the fact that even at that moment, um, there's some X factor and somebody can have all the right ideas and still not execute, you know, which is kind of a drag and it, and it kind of runs against the spirit of a how to you know, approach. But I think it's really important to say that, too. You know, it's not the person who's traveled the most or is the most articulate about writing theory or has the most advanced political view that writes the best. It's the person who writes the best, you know. So that's both terrifying and maybe a liberation for some of us. Yeah, you know, that's that's a, an excellent um like lead into my next line of questioning because you know tied to this question of what makes a reader keep reading is is what makes a work of literary art resonant and why do some writers seem to have a knack for really connecting with a with an audience and with a reader while others do not they seem to be either you know they might resonate with a smaller number of people or they might struggle um, to get published at all but what I've thought about, I've thought about this a lot in the course of doing this show for the past decade and in struggling with my own work is, you know, I feel like the, the facility with language, the ability to put words on a page in a decently artful way might be the easiest part. <laughs> and the, the real, yeah. the real gift is being able to read one's own work objectively combined with and this is just me theorizing so you can feel free to disagree but combined with like what i call like this intuition for uh, how to please a crowd um like this kind of innate sense of an audience and what is pleasing and um connected to that and then i'm going to throw it back to you is something you allude to in your book, which I, you know, I definitely connect with as a writer and a person who does a conversational podcast, but is the idea of writing as a conversation. As, you know, as a writer, you are in conversation with your reader, and when a conversation is going well or when a piece of literature is connecting, it has something to do with presence, the presence of the author in the work that they're doing as they're, you know, building their story on the page, or in the context of a podcast conversation, I always tell people that this project of mine, whatever it amounts to, is 
at its core, like over and over again, like an exercise in trying to be like awake, you know, in conversation with people. And when I am, um, you know, when I am to a high degree, it tends to go well. And when I fail, that's when the episodes fall short, you know, for me and probably for the listener. So, you know, I know that's a lot, but I feel like it's all of a piece. And the, the core of it is like, you know, this idea of what is at the heart of a piece of writing that connects and what it requires of a writer to create one. Yeah, I think you said it brilliantly, Brad. And I think that that is um, th- this idea of, of conversation. And you said, you know, of being aware of where an audience is. And I think, you know, sometimes in the MFA world, that's kind of, I don't know, I've, I've gotten the sense that it's people don't want to talk about that. It's a, it's a little shameful. Uh, you know, the idea that you're pandering to an audience. But I think it's actually communication. You're communicating with people for whom you have a palpable respect. That that's who who wouldn't want to be involved in that. So I think you're exactly right. And I think I also talk a little bit in in at Syracuse about the fact that we. Well, okay. So what what makes a conversation? Mostly, I think honesty. You know, what's honesty? Honesty is the absence of a distracting agenda. You know, so we we sit down here together and uh, and we're talking and. If I have a list of things I want to say, that, that's a bad conversation because I'm going to not be responding directly to you and vice versa. So uh, if if a, if there's honesty in a, in a conversation or in a work of art, um, it's felt on the other end as respect. And one of the things I talk to my students about, too, is that the the um, it's okay, whatever occurs, whatever's occurring in the mind of the writer is is totally valid you have to accept it so for example ego you know like, like i got into writing because i wanted i wanted a, a attention for something i did well and over the years i'd say it's shifted to where i really just want to do something well but the attention is still part of it so i tell my students don't you know let's not turn away from anything that might be used as fuel so if you've always wanted to be loved and famous fine you know if you've always wanted to have a golden bust of yourself in stockholm fine it, it, it really doesn't matter you it, it takes so much energy to write well that you have to take whatever fuel you can get you know so i think that, that uh about about this that audience that's the that's the gateway if you say yes i do want to be in touch with my intelligent audience in a respectful way um that in a way that's the answer to all your problems because that combined with this ability to read your own work means if you're on page six and you're sucking a little bit you know first you can admit it and then you can say well i don't want to suck because that impedes my communication with the audience hmm what's the nature of my sucking you know and most of us are good enough readers that we can figure that out so you always have a way to to go forward and there's a a, a line uh, I, I don't mean to keep regurgitating lines from your book, but it, they just seem like such great starting points for conversation. Uh, is this idea of liking the person that you are in your stories better than you like the real me? <laughs> um, I, I relate yeah. to that as well. We get to be, you know, especially a, you know, I guess it doesn't matter if you're working in an auto fiction mode or if you're working in something that, you know, the line between you and the character is a little bit more circuitous we still get to be versions of ourselves on the page and we have the, uh, I think the luxury of, uh, of perfecting it. And I, I don't know, I feel very much the same way. Like in real life, I feel like I'm constantly d- 
disappointing myself somehow or disappointing other people. And the control we have on the page allows us to be the best versions of ourselves. Yeah, and I think there's also a, a technical aspect to that. You know, I was working on a story this last month or so, two months, and um, it was all right, you know, and I was pretty happy with it. I was almost ready to send it. And then I just, you know, in this spirit of micro-noticing, I was reading it the other day, and I got to one place where it, my enjoyment just went from, a, you know, whatever, 8.2 to a 6.8. You know, almost, I mean, 20 years ago, I wouldn't even have noticed, but I noticed it. And I thought, okay, so let's think about that. And then I ended up cutting out that part where the – where the energy drop was um, and setting it aside. But I really liked it. Uh, but it didn't logically belong there. It was it was solving a problem too soon, basically. So I just let it sit there for a few days. And then yesterday, or maybe the day before, I, I thought, oh, wait a minute. Maybe that's the very ending of the story. And I just, you know, kind of popped that in there. Um, and what actually had happened was I, in in that rearrangement, I posed a higher level question uh, I had the story is now posing a higher level question than it was before. So that's what I mean when I say I like that guy better. The guy that I was today when I, or whenever I added that um, was smarter than the previous guy because he was recognizing the lineaments of his own argument and wasn't answering the question prematurely. And by answering it later, he actually elevated it. You know, so it's not only it's not only. Um, I mean, I think I'm funnier with a little bit of time, you know, because it's just infinite retakes. But the um, the internal logic of a story, if you wait it out, you know, if you're really patient with it, it we talked about engineering. It, a, a good story really is kind of an equation or it's kind of like a proof, I guess, a mathematical proof. Um, those things, mathematical proofs or coding, I, I imagine, they are really highly logical documents, which is to say they are very enamored of cause and effect so by waiting out your own story you you um you get it to ask a deeper question and then you get it to spit out a more honest answer and then you feel like a smarter guy and you know you you just touched on this idea of um mathematical uh you know there being a kind of mathematical logic to fiction and maybe in particular to the story form because it's so compressed and uh, I want to talk, I'd love to hear you actually tell the story of this conversation you had with your, with the fiction editor at the New Yorker. Um, I think we sort of, we, we kind of glossed over this idea earlier, but I, I think it's worth repeating or talking about because, um, you know, as I recall it from the book, you were sort of going over some edits and fishing for a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Very much. Yeah. It was that story, Sea Oak. And, uh, you know, I worked on it for a long time and, and um, sent it in and they liked it. And then we were doing kind of some, somehow we got in a, a bind where we were editing it a little more quickly than I would have liked. And um, so there was a lot of, of uh, you know, reservations being expressed. And so at one point it is Bill Buford. And I said, you know, Bill, what do you like about this story? And he he was a real he's a really sweet, incredibly smart guy who also is has a gift I don't, which is he can talk so slowly and kind of, you know, with some self-control. So he said, uh, I said, what do you like about the story? He said, well, um, I read a line and I like it enough to read the next. And that was it. That was the whole aesthetic, you know? <laughs> and yeah, so it's a beautiful idea because really that's how you go through it. You know, you pick up a book, you read a line, do you like it enough to go on? Go on. And if you keep doing that, um, my, my idea goes, 
all the stuff that we obsess about, you know, theme and character and plot and political content, that stuff is going to occur naturally. It's, it's a byproduct of keeping the reader reading. It's not the goal. It's a byproduct. So now whether that's objectively true or not, it really helps me to think that way. Uh, just think, yeah, don't worry about that. Just make, just make sure that your perfect reader out there who you like very much and who's very smart, who's a little smarter than you, is still interested in your story. If you do that, everything will take care of itself. Uh, and, you know, again, whether that's true or not, it doesn't, I don't really care. Um, I preach this idea of self-gaming, which is, you know, in the term, in terms of writing, believe in that, which helps you be productive. So, uh, it's a, it's maybe a form of ritual, you know, ritual thinking, but for me to say, I really don't have to worry about any of those things that we learn about in, you know, freshman year of college and plot and theme and character and, or three act structure or any of that stuff. I don't have to even think about it. I just have to keep you know, putting one foot in front of the other and looking back to see if you're still with me. And that will, that will involve everything. Yeah, no, it's like tied to this, uh, like another idea, uh, in the book that you have this idea of like the, the question of, does this delight me? And you were, uh, describing, I think a stage earlier in your career when you were trying to rest, you know, trying to wrestle with the expectations that you, I think, place on yourself, you know, because you were an ambitious guy who wanted to write good fiction, um, but also the expectations placed on a writer by a discerning reader, and it can become overwhelming. Like, you know, you can give yourself a task that by by virtue of the way that I think we describe it to ourselves can easily become suffocating. And you, I think, solve this problem really elegantly by sort of equating uh, the task at hand with like being a carnival barker, leading the reader into a magic black box where like neither of you are entirely sure what's going to happen. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's different for different folks, but like this made the problem clear to you and manageable to you. Um, and then you, I think you tie it to like, yes. does, does this delight me? Like, am I delighted by what I'm writing? Like, or am I bored? You know, these kind of like easy, clear questions that we use as litmus tests that, um, you know, sometimes we can lose sight of somehow and we can get kind of get lost in the, in the mire. Yeah. I think it's, um, the, the idea that you, you know, I say something's going to happen to you in my story and it's, I don't know what it is exactly. And I hope it's not going to be trivial. That that's kind of the, my, my mantra. Um, and what that does is it allows me to have all these mathematical ideas about the form while at the same time realizing that that's not enough, you know, it's not sufficient that a thing be shapely and have cause and effect. That's just like the baseline. The The glory of the story is, is the other things that happen along the way. Um, so I, I, to me, that's it's useful to just say, I want to really, you know, take the reader who I respect on a really wild ride that's not irrelevant to her actual experience. That's kind of the, the goal. And so what that, but see, even that is sort of hard to implement. I mean, that's pretty, you know, that would be a real uh, writer, writer's block inducer if you just had that on your desk. But I think that the thing is that that credo is only realizable on the line level. So, I mean, like if, if I say, um, you know, uh, uh, Jim got wet walking into the creek. All right. Well, it, is that a respectful sentence? Kind of. But there's something about it that seems wasteful to me. Just uh, it seems redundant somehow. Um, so I would start messing with it and say, well, maybe I can just say Jim walked into the creek and the reader would imp would imply that he's wet. Of course, he's in a creek. Uh, 
Jim walked into the creek. Now, where was Jim before? Is he crossing the creek or is he walking alongside it and veering over? That's important. It's also it's part of respect. You know, I'm going to try to give you this thing, this idea as quickly as possible so that it arises naturally in your mind, which is a favor to you as my reader. So, you know, it can be so many things about what we do is can, can be daunting. For me, it's about um, trying to keep things local. You know, um, yes, I want to, you know, uh, cause fiction to be compassion, training wheels. Blah, blah, but how the hell do you do that? You, you can't. But what you can do is you can have that intention and then take it on the line level and see how it plays out, you know. So I want to ask you, there are several things that you, uh, like kind of lessons that you include uh, in the book that feel very much like an outgrowth of the work that you've done in the classroom at Syracuse uh, over the past couple of decades. And uh, I'd just like to go over them <laughs> briefly, if possible, because I think they could be useful to listeners. <laughs> um, there's a trope in the book, and I'm assuming it's something that you use in uh, your life as a teacher called the things I couldn't help noticing cart. I don't know if you invented this specifically for the mm -hmm. book or if, if you, you know, if you use it in teaching, but it's a useful thing, you know, because I think, again, especially in the context of a short story where there's so much compression and, and really to a degree that exceeds, I think, the novel, every, every word matters. You know, there's, there's a sense of uh, mathematical precision to the short story that, um, you know, uh, I think in a novel, you don't necessarily have to, to stick to as much. But what is the things I couldn't help noticing, Cart? Well, basically, it's the thought is this. If you let, let's let's do a musical example. Let's say you're sitting in a room and someone says, oh, listen to this. And they press play and there's a little four second uh, of something, you know. Well, my thing is already the work of art has begun. And what's happened is that your mind, which is a total blank has now got some stuff in it. It's got, you know, it's got other songs in it that this guitar reminds you of. It's got, got uh, some expectation that's caused by the chord changes. Uh, it's got all kinds of things that you that are really impossible to articulate, but they're there. And the whole artistic journey is now the musician is going to take what she just caused to rise in her mind and she's going to respond to it. She She's not going to just add to it. She's going to actually respond to that somehow. Um, so that is a nice way to think about it because it means um, at every step in our work, we've caused that cloud to uh, appear over the head of our reader. And our job is kind of to sort of know what's in there, you know, and again, not to articulate it necessarily, but to just feel these are the things that are, these are the bowling pins that are up in the air. So this cart idea is just that sometimes uh, a story will get excessive about something. So let's use a kind of dumb example. But let's say that you're reading the first page and you notice that there's a ton of alliteration uh, around the letter L. Okay, now your first generous assumption is that that's not an accident. In other words, the, the writer knew she did that. It's not a blunder. Then immediately, you, I say, you put that, that um, observation in your cart, things I couldn't help notice, and that is what the writer has to deal with, has to work with, has to exploit, has to answer for in the rest of the story. Um, so, and the point is not to have the card empty. The point is to have it full and then make make use of it, you know. So th this is the, part of the idea that a story really is just a thing, a machine that responds to itself. 
and the meaning of the story comes out of how it responds to itself. So that I find that kind of liberating because, oh, God, how can I find this story to – how can I write a story that will be about love, you know, or be about – or will honor – or, you know, sort of use all the things I know about family life? And that is a non-starter. I can't do that. But if I say I'm just going to make a little something, maybe a page of something – and I'm going to re- revise it until it starts to give off some little sparks or have some jokes or something or where, you know, a kind of a, a spring gets wound. Like, ooh, Hal must really be pissed off at this point. You know, uh, Fargo is the pilot of Fargo is something that really does that beautifully. But so I'm going to make some little page that causes some kind of potential energy, you know, and then being an artist just means knowing what that potential energy feels like and then using it. You know, so that takes the pressure off. And then I think that also means you don't have to worry what your story is about. Your story is going to tell you what it's about uh, at the end of this process. And in the best of all worlds, it'll be about something you didn't even know or didn't even know you were interested in. You know, so that's the what keeps me interested about it is there's no method. You never you might get better at it, but not intellectually. You just get better. Your body gets better at it. And, and it's always going to teach you things that you didn't know you needed to know if you can keep that kind of open-minded approach. And what, what is ritual banality avoidance? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fancy one. Uh, it, it's just really saying, you know, like you, you come up with an image or a sentence and you just kind of, you know, apply the banality test. Like, is that something anybody could have thought? Is that the first order description of that, you know, that car? Uh, is that something that, uh, is this move in the story the move that everybody expects. Now it, it doesn't. Now it's kind of complicated because actually, you want to do a kind of uh, skillful use of something. Like if you if you feel that the next beat of the story is, you know, whatever. Larry runs out of the church enraged. That's he he might very well do it. But if it responds too neatly to what came before, we get the feeling of it. It's like a Hollywood movie, you know, a bad Hollywood movie. Uh, so. I always say that you we're making um part of the job is to make that little page of text or paragraph create some kind of expectation, some kind of like a potential energy or a charge on the plate. Um and then we have to take that into account, but not too neatly and not too randomly. You know, and that's so it's a little bit like uh um there is a a story about the Buddha that he had a he had a student who was a like a guitar player basically, and the student said you know, when I meditate, should I, should I concentrate really, really hard or, or should I be really kind of relaxed? And the Buddha said, well, when you tune your guitar, do you tune the string? You know, so all these things are kind of, you're kind of, um, like the three bears, you're doing it just right. But, but that's why, you know, that's why the how to approach is kind of, I don't like it because there's, there's no, there's no, it's, I had to, in this book, I had to tell myself over and again, you're not telling anybody how to do it you're just kind of describing how it's been done you know or actually with the russians we're just describing the effect they have on us and trying to posit reasons for why but i think part of being a real artist is you have to be really respectful of the irreducibility of what we do you know which is hard to do while you're talking about it but i think that's that's the goal well, and everybody tunes their guitar differently, you know, even the pros. Like everybody has their, like some guitarists, you know, I've heard they love to have their guitar slightly out of tune or, you know, who knows. But um, I, I totally get yeah. like, trying to find some sort of equilibrium that works for us. At the end of the day, we're really not, you know, we didn't become writers, although it sometimes seems like it. We didn't become writers, talk about it. 
you know, and, and we're not the writers that we love aren't beloved to us because they have a good line in their shtick. We, we love them because somehow or another, in whatever mysterious way, they do it, you know. And so I think that's for me as a teacher, that's an important thing to remember is and I always have this thing at the end of a semester where I kind of go, shoo, that was fun. And wow, now I don't have to talk about it anymore. I can just do it, you know, and that's a, uh, a relief, e- even though the talking about it, I think, will help me to do it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's like a necessary evil. And, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I think it, I think it's been the case for me or it can be my tendency to sometimes to get bogged down in like the analysis of the thing. Um, I don't know, like I can, I can sometimes I think overestimate perhaps how much time I need to spend on thinking about and reading about how to and why versus getting down to brass tacks and just doing the work. I think this is something I've improved on maybe later than I should have. Like I've been too slow to realize that the most important yeah, thing is, know, is to sit down and do it. Yeah. But yeah, but you know, that it's, I think all writers are like that and it's because we love it so much. You know, it's, it's like you, if you ever had that feeling, you know, uh, and I remember exactly where I was when I had this feeling of just like, I want to write a book. I want I want 120 pages. I want some hard covers on it. I want my name on it. I just want that so much. And that's a beautiful thing. But then it also makes that, – that also makes you want to be a master, you know, which means often know how to do it every time, never make a mistake, you know, to have a method. And that is antithetical to the task, you know. So that's – I think that's the line you have to walk. It's, it's, um, it's not the case. I mean there's nobody who's a great writer who hasn't done the – assessing in in the analyzing uh but there's probably nobody who's a great writer who only does the obsessing and the analyzing so it's a it's a tough job but i really you know as i get older i just i just i'm so happy that i chose it because it always it's like a really good friend who no matter what weather you find yourself in that friend will have something to say to you you know it um it it doesn't even if even if the thing you were going through was a, a uh diminishing of your abilities as a writer the form would have something to say to you. Or even if what you're going through was your health was bad or, or you were losing uh, someone that you loved, the, the activity, if you've you know, nurtured it uh, over your life, it will always have some comfort to give you. It's, sometimes it's cold comfort. But um, I, I feel so fortunate to have something so deep in my life because it, it, uh, it really is a gift that kind of keeps, keeps giving. You know? And I want to talk, you know, this, this speaks to your work, um, for sure. And, you know, just from my perspective, maybe there are listeners out there who share this perspective. There are imaginative feats that unfold in the fiction of certain writers that feel extra impressive to me. Uh, and it might be because I think my natural tendency is, is more realist. Um, it's something I'm, I'm actually working on. I'd love to do something that's more purely imaginative and the kind of fantastical at some point, if I could, like unshackle myself is the way that I would put it. And, Mm uh, I, I guess I want to, I want to talk to you a little bit about this idea of psychological physics, uh, as you put it in your book and the way in which a writer can execute on the page, having something impossible happen, uh, and doing it effectively. Mm. Uh, this is something you're really good at. Uh, and I'd love to hear you describe how you do it. Well, th- thanks, Brett. I, I think, um, you know, the one thing we haven't talked about is the, the role of necessity in a piece of fiction. So I always thought that you could 
get away with these fantastical things in proportion to how essential they were, how necessary they were. Uh, in other words, I sometimes I'll get a letter from someone who says, I really love writing crazy stories. And, um, and I always want to say, well, but is the, is the crazy necessary? You know, I, I feel like it should always be whatever we do, whether it's realism or, or, or not, you know, it should always be subjugated to some emotional intention. Uh, and again, it's a vague emotional intention. We don't have to know exactly what it is. But for me, I my intention is I really want all my stories to speak to uh, those moments in our lives when the, you know, the scrim drops away and we're confronted with the brutality of this life that we're living in and, and also the beauty. But but, you know, I want my stories to be comforting in the sense that they won't be full of shit if you read them at a low moment, something, something like that, you know? Um, so that, um, that means that I don't, I don't want anything in the story that doesn't serve that purpose. And, or another way of saying it is I don't want anything weird to happen until it's going to do that kind of emotional work. So my, my default is there's no weird shit allowed. It's all, I'm basically a realist at heart, you know? Um, but, Every so often you get to a place where a story is saying, if you will just let me have the talking spider, I will be more profound, you know, <laughs> or often what it does is it just says, there's a question I have to ask here in this story, but I can't do it without the talking spider. Would you allow it? You know? So I think for me, that's the answer is you, you really just want to, um, you know, cause it's a little bit like, uh, let me think for a second. Uh, okay. Like, okay. So. The, the the scene in Star Wars where they go into that bar, the first Star Wars, and it's like all those crazy, you know, drinkers. Um, I think that one of the reasons that works and one of the reasons we buy it, there's two reasons, actually. One is because we've seen that scene in every Western, you know, they go into the bar, they go into the saloon. So we we kind of see them going toward the saloon. And we go, oh, oh, yeah, I know this. OK, it's familiar. So in that way, it's necessary in a certain way or it's it's normal. Then when you you go in, the trope is kind of illuminated by the cleverness of the the different creatures. So I think that's where weirdness weirdness is. Um, well, you know, weirdness doesn't sell any differently than the quotidian. Actually, you know, if I say uh, a white horse stood in the corral, that's realism. But if you give that notion to Cormac McCarthy, he's going to make that sucker come alive in three, in four dimensions with the sentence that he uses. So he had. So we have this job of trying to describe a white horse as we do trying to describe the talking spider. It's a sort of a sales job in a certain way. So I think in, I don't really make that much of a distinction, and I'm real comfortable. You know, like in this book I'm working on now, it's going to have some stories that are very realistic and some that are really crazy. And what unites them, I hope, is that they're they're all trying to do this emotional work I talk about. And there's also this idea of how, like, if something impossible happens in a story how the story reacts to that impossibility. I think that's kind of what you're speaking to, right? I mean, there's got to be a kind of, uh, is integrity the right word? Or uh, I'm, I'm searching for the word, but you know what I'm saying? Like you, you have to respond. Like if you, if you insert yeah. the talking spider in your story, then everything that follows the introduction of that talking spider has to adhere to a kind of internal logic, consistent internal logic. Yeah. And you said earlier, you said you used the word in respect to your podcast, awareness or alertness or presence, I think presence. So if you, you know, any, you can say anything in a story, there's no, no limits. It's just, once you say it, don't pretend you didn't, you know, um, if, if, uh, 
if right now the ceiling collapses in this basement from which I'm talking to you, uh, and there's a loud crash and screaming from upstairs, and neither one of us acknowledges it, that's that's damaging to your podcast. You know, whereas if we if I go, oh my god, Brad, the ceiling just collapsed. Hold on a second. That makes the podcast kind of cool. You know, so I think that's the thing is there's no. Um, there's no rules, you know, except I think awareness is the rule of fiction. If you if you did something on page one, you did it. And and uh, not only not only do you have to use it, but you get to use it. That That's the, the beauty of it. That's otherwise it would never be meaningful. You know, if 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 um, if that wasn't the case, a story has no way to cohere and to be to be moving, you know. And so so that I said earlier, but the the um, the way in which the story responds to itself is how we how is how it appears to be giving off meaning. Uh, um, you know, there's a, there's a Chekhov story called Lady with Pet Dog, which I did I didn't put in the book, but the whole thing is so simple. There's a guy who's kind of a, a a serial polygamist. He cheats on his wife all the time. It's like a recreational thing for him. And he goes to Yalta and he meets a new girl. And so first you're like, are they going to get together? Whoops, they did. And then the question hanging over the story is, well, is he going to abandon her as he's done every other woman? Or is this the one that's going to change his pattern? You kind of know the answer is the second one because it's a story. And then the the question is how? Like how how is this going to be different from all the other ones? Um, and in showing us how, uh, Chekhov is making the meaning of the story. He's basically telling us what he believes love to be actually, you know. Uh, so it's, So there's – it's a, you know, we make a little machine, it responds to itself, and the way in which it responds to itself is why we think stories have political content and emotional meaning and all that kind of stuff and philosophy. Yeah, you know, what it makes me think of is like the ad sense of admiration that I always feel whenever I read something that I feel is great, where I feel like there's such an elegance to the architecture of the thing, and it's almost always tied to this idea of simplicity and uh, like this kind of thought of, of course, like why didn't I think of that? You know, this is the most beautiful right, construction. Right. Like, as you described that Chekhov story, I was like, that's a great idea. You know, like wow, you know, that's a story right there. And you, yeah, <laughs> they, they're always like the good ones. You can always yeah. kind of boil down into these like one-liners or you know, a short conversation that makes it abundantly no, clear. No, and that's actually something we do in classes. I mentioned the book called The Hollywood Version, which is, you know, a student will bring a story in. And I always want people to give me a kind of a one or two sentence summary, as I just did with that Chekhov story. Uh, and, you know, because if you if like I say in the book, if something if some weird machine landed in your yard, you wouldn't rush out with your screwdriver to start messing with it until you figured out what it was intended to do. You know, so if we can say, oh, yeah, this story is blah, blah, blah. Then you can start saying, well, I think I, I don't really know why this third chapter is in there if that's its intention. This That third chapter doesn't really work with that intention. Uh, whereas if you just start throwing down uh, prescriptions for a story, which can sometimes happen in a workshop, it's really, you know, not not so helpful. So I think and, – and so really what you find out is the great stories are always one-liners. You know, they're jokes basically. Uh, now the thing about that Chekhov story and is that I, I don't know that I – I could have come away with that one line first. You know, it, it feels like real life. It's, it's, it's three-dimensional and it's about this couple, you know. But when you um, look at the structure of it, that's very simple and with some beautiful, you know, gorgeous real-life embellishments on it in every, in every line. So I want to talk to you um, about revision, which is a huge part of uh, the process, obviously. And – you know, you said something in the book that really struck me 
with respect to how revision is tied to voice. Uh, I think that at first blush, you know, especially the, the writer in an early stage of his or her career might think that the voice has to kind of be there, um, fully formed or, you know, I guess after enough trial and error, after enough reading, you might finally have like the light switch flip on and then there you go, you know, your voice starts to pour out onto the page. But you say that we find our voice through the thousands of small decisions that we make in the revision process, which again, is one of those thoughts where I was like, yeah, of course. And you know, why have I never put that to myself so clearly, you know, but that really is it. If you talk about this mysterious process of finding one's voice, it really is embedded in revising. Yeah. I, I just try to say that it's, it's, you know, we always think that we have one tool to make voice, which is the blurt. You know, you stand on a mountaintop and you dictate your whole book. And and I think that's true. I mean, there are times when I hit that motor, I'm like, oh, this is it. But the second tool we have is to chip away at, at what we've said. Because usually, you know, if, I, I'm speaking just for myself, the first drafts are pretty banal. You know, it, it sounds, uh, or, you know, if I do an interview, uh, like an email, it's pretty much just normal talking, you know, it's, it's not that great. And, uh, but chipping away at it and, and even editing it with the purpose of making it a little freaky, uh, can be a way to, to find voice. So I think both those things are in play. Most young writers, I think, uh, I it was certainly true for me. We think the first thing is true. Just let me sing at the top of my lungs, you know? Uh, and then with maturity, you kind of see, oh yeah, well I can do that. And then I can make it more, more uh, particularly me by cutting away and usually we're cutting away the auto speech you know the the, the cliches and the kind of uh, banalities and also I think a lot uh, times I'm cu- you're cutting away that which is already implied you know so it's almost like a kind of a, a Rubik's cube where you say well okay um, I say um, well like earlier you know Jim walked into the creek and got wet uh, would I say that most of my readers will assume the wetness from the going into the creek? Well, probably not all of them. You know, maybe there's some readers who would get a little jolt out of the, you know, getting wet part. Uh, but that's where you're being yourself and you're saying, well, I, I don't, mm, I'm not writing for that reader. I'm writing for more of a jolt if I omit that last phrase. Uh, th- that's a kind of, you know, micro tuning that you're always doing in revision, but in the process, um, you know, if we come up with Jim veered into the creek, that has arguably more voice in it than the original version. Jim uh, walked into the creek and got all wet. So it's all kind of, as you say, it's all tied together. Also, you know, kind of referencing back to your previous question, that simplicity of form that we feel in the great stories, I think that really comes from revision. You know, a story at first is always like, um, you know, a drunk person on a hike. You kind of keep blundering off into the weeds and like, no, no, <laughs> this is the more interesting way. Uh, but, but with revision, you kind of go, you, you're sort of doing advanced work for the reader. Like, okay, so let me try to see what happens if, you know, if Terrence actually goes to Mexico city. Okay. So you, you write that. And then at some point down the line, you go, yeah, that's not really that great. Or, uh, you realize that that's a misguided section. So you lop it off and you start over after enough time, you know, some months or years, the reader has a sense that you've gone ahead of her and, you've opted in every case for the most interesting fraught uh, choice. And that's what we call elegance of form. You know, a story, a story like that lady with pet dog has certain questions that it could ask that are very profound and certain questions it could ask that are banal. And in revising it, however he did it, uh, you know, Chekhov made sure that the story asked 
the uh, the most profound questions that it could. Yeah, it's like what you're saying speaks to this idea of a story or a piece of fiction being a, like what you call a highly organized system um, with causation that is intentional and clear. And I, I guess, you know, fr from a, uh, a mechanical standpoint or like a, this, from the perspective of the work itself, it's trying to get your story and the system at work in the story more organized. And that's the hard work. I mean, it's like, that's the work of revision. Are there tricks of the trade or things that, you know, you, you would tell listeners to look for as they're assessing their own work and trying to make sure that the system is organized? <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're right. Organization is that which results for the given writer with revision that, you know, I mean, that's kind of circular logic, but if you work on something in good faith for, for a while, uh, and I, I might qualify that because it's not true when you're young. It, it, it sometimes goes the opposite. But after a certain point in your development, if you're working on something in good faith, it's going to tend to become a, a better organized system. Um, yeah, that's I, I um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> because or, organization, I guess I'm saying organization is what happens when you revise. It, it just does. It just gets cleaner and and. Uh, uh, and but then you know the other thing I think we have to be careful about, and I was really mindful of writing the book because the there's something in I think it's in woodworking or something called, and I'm going to mispronounce it, but I think it's called wabasabi. But it's a Japanese idea that you, the master craftsman, leaves a, a little fuck up in there just to remind that that a person made it. So when we say organized system, we say revise, and we all this part of it is that you are. I, I think of it not so much as engineering, but blessing. You know, you do something, you're, you're writing a 30-page a story. That's got so many moments in it. It certainly isn't the case that you you would precisely know the effect of every single phrase. That's impossible. But basically, you you know, you you get it done and you, you, you can make it through without a disappointment. Then you bless it, you know. And you're blessing a lot of stuff you don't even know. You don't even know it's in there, you know. Uh, you might even be, for example, I've got a story now that has a little kind of a page in there that I don't know I could exactly explain why it's there. I know I couldn't. I tried. It, it, it's there for a reason, but I can't articulate what it is. That's a highly, highly organized system. In other words, you can program in a little bit of mess. You know, in fact, you sort of you better. You know, if it's if it's too, if you if you adhere to these principles too much, you write a proof, and a proof is not a story. You know, so no so, easy answers, unfortunately. No, no, and I think. Uh... Yeah, you you want it to feel like a human being wrote it, <laughs> ideally, uh, as opposed, yeah. as opposed to like yeah. a, some sort of like algorithm or something. And uh, I, I want to, on a related note, I'm going to deviate a little bit because this is not explicitly said in your book, but I could feel like I think I could feel some of it implicitly in the book. Um, and having read uh, interviews with you through the years, um, I like I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that you. Um, are a meditator and have like at least a, a, a reasonable interest in Buddhism, uh, as do I. And I want to tie this to uh, some recent reading that I've been doing just for pleasure. I read an, a biography of Allen Ginsberg and I kind of got on this kick for whatever mm -hmm. reason where I was like reading about the beats and thinking about that whole mode of writing. Um, and when you dig into the weeds on it, I think like, you know, as a young person, when I was in school in Boulder, you know, the beats are very much in the air in that town. And, 
you know, it's very alluring, this idea of like first thought, best thought, just let it pour out, you know, and, and then you read about Alan in terms of how he actually worked and you read about Jack Kerouac in terms of how he actually worked. And it really, I mean, some of they, they did do some of that spontaneous writing that made its way into a published book, but most of the time they were revising just like the rest of us. And I guess... I'm interested to know if that has ever appealed to you. Like, did you ever go through a phase where you thought about that mode of work and, you know, has the meditation practice that you, I I assume, or I think you maintain, has that affected your work or helped improve it or informed it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my wife and I are are Nyingma Buddhists. uh, And I, I think, you know, there's really, to me, the beats were really important to me when I was young. And I love the idea that you would just spontaneously write a book, you know? Uh, and then I read that book that I spontaneously wrote. And, you know, if that was it, I, I was in trouble. Uh, <laughs> so I think there's not really a contradiction though about that because well, the way I see my process is, okay, you, it's definitely first thought, best thought on a first draft. And also on the second draft, you know, your, your thought so-called is just you reading the thing and seeing how you like it and tweaking it. That's, that takes place in exactly the same mindset as the first blurt. You know, it's just that kind of like low concept, uh, what you call it really, you know, you try to keep your mind a little quiet so you can see what you, what you did and then you respond to it in that snap. Uh, and then, and then the only difference is you just do that 20,000 times, you know, so you're coming to that predictive moment fresh every time. And it is a new moment every time, you know, you, it's, your mind is different as you, as you interact with it. Uh, and the weird thing is over time, you know, you would think that that process would just mean you just rewrite every day for the rest of your life, the same paragraph, but somehow over time it does for me anyway, it settles into something where I'm like, yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that. Mm, Not that, you know, so there is some kind of, of, um, the, the thing does kind of move in a certain direction. And then I think you have to apply a little bit of, uh, I guess it's while, Wasabi, where you say, well, I mean, uh, good enough, you know, now the difference between a, maybe a really good writer and someone not so good is that good enough is higher. You know, it's, you learn to be a little more um, patient with, with pronouncing good enough. But um, I, I think it's, I, this book made me really think that there's not that much of a difference between what we call meditation and what we call writing. It's just it's I think meditation is more intense and focused and it, it's um pure in a certain way but you know what what are you doing you're looking at either a moment in the world a moment in consciousness or you're looking at a moment of prose and you're trying to react to it freshly you know without any as you said with um presence you know uh without and what that means really functionally it just means uh, how many um uh see i guess pre-decisions are you bringing to what kind of agenda are you bringing to it so you know we all we've all done that thing where you wrote something yesterday it was great yesterday you come back to it today and somehow it's not it doesn't seem to be any good you know or (laughs) as good and you can point you can point to where it's not good and you're like how how can that can't be right so i think part of it is to say okay i'm going to abandon my predisposition to like it and just say uh, you know, today I'm thinking you do that. So, so the same. It's just that about cultivating that freshness of mind that says I don't really have an investment in in it yet. You know, you know uh, I'm just gonna let it tell me what it, what it wants to be. Another corny way of saying that it's I'm gonna read the energy off it correctly. And I think that's you know, 
And I think I think that's kind of what we aspire to in the real world. You know, you go to a, a party or a political rally and you have all your or you go on a reporting trip, as I sometimes do, and you have all these ideas, you know, that that are kind of how we bolster ourselves up in our in our continual insecurity. Well, if you can get those ideas to recede and get your mind to be quiet, then you could actually receive a lot more data from the rally or the trip or the the story in front of you. So I think in that way, it's very similar to a meditative approach. But, you know, and, and that all sounds pretty good, but it's really difficult because you the way you make your identity is by with those bolstering ideas, you know. And so um, but I do see the two activities as uh, more mutually supportive than I used to. I used to think, oh, I'm, I should be meditating. But I'm writing. I'm such an egotistical, you know, and now I'm like, yeah, it's the same mind, you know, the same mind is at work. Uh, and if if I can be, you know, alert to what it's doing, it's it's all for the good either either in either form. So um, do you like as a, a writer, I, I assume you probably have some kind of ritualized writing time. Um, I don't know. Some people are, are more. uh all over the place with it. They kind of write in little pockets of time whenever they can find them. But most writers I've talked to on this show tend to have like a set time of day that they like to work. And I'm wondering, A, is this the case for you? And then B, um, do, do you have like a, a sitting meditation practice that you do that is somehow correlated with your writing time or are the two things totally separate? Uh, they're, they're separate. I, I have, um, I have a, a plan A, which is I get up and uh, feed the dogs and take them for a walk, and I go in and work for five hours. That's plan A. And But often it, that doesn't work, so I have a plan B, which is just, as you said, just whatever I can get, you know. And the, the, the thing that those two have in common is that there's a little, just a, you know, it's just like maybe a split-second mind adjustment. This is like writing now, you know. Uh, so it's kind of a, I mean, for me, it's almost like first I agree to sit down. And then I agree to pull the paper forward. And all the time, I'm like, I really don't want to do this yet. But I know as soon as I start reading, that little judgment uh, machine in my head will kick in and I'll get drawn into the prose. So I'm not really – I'm pretty flexible. I, I, you know, I like to um, I, I like to write when I'm feeling kind of happy, you know, kind of um, hopeful or, or kind of uh, uh, tickled by something. But, I, you know, but often if I'm – working on something and I like the first part of it, that'll have that effect anyway. So, um, but over the years I've gotten pretty, you know, I can pretty much do it anywhere or anytime. Um, and meditation is a little more, um, it, that's been all over the place in the last 10 years from really doing it for large blocks of time to not doing it at all. So that's, that's on a separate track. Um, I, I will say like this point in my life, it's getting more and more, uh, interesting and kind of vital in, in terms of just like, you know, at 62, you, you have had losses, you know, you, uh, people and, uh, and pets and have died and gotten sick and things haven't gone the way you wanted them to. And, uh, you've seen that, you know, I've seen the sort of intransigence of my own neuroses. Like I'm pretty much the same person I was at 18. And, and, uh, so, and, and, you know, and you feel the end, the end is going to come. It, it's at a certain point, uh, you know, you start to go, oh yeah, for me too. That's actually true. You know? Uh, so then there's a little bit of a frantic feeling of like, I'm really not ready. I'm not ready in terms of my, um, fear, I guess. But more importantly, I, you know, I, I know, uh, one thing I know is that there's a state of mind a person can get into, which we would call, you know, loving or uh, selfless or 
compassionate or something. And I've had little taste of that over the years. And it's, I know it's so powerful, you know, and it's so much where we want to be. It's a state where you've got less delusions than usual, um, where you're out, out of yourself in a really good way. But the franticness comes from the fact that I'm not there yet ever, you know, like, like every so often there's a little, just a hint that that's possible. So in my mind now, I'm like, well, are you that stupid that, you know, you, you kind of know some ways to, to get into that state. Uh, you know, people who have done that reliably, when are you going to start making that a, a priority? So that's really a little bit heavy, but that's what's on my mind these days is, you know, you, you know, I tend to live from book to book, like, uh, and, and as you know, when you're writing a book, you, you, it poses a certain or, or a sequence of urgencies, you know, I've got to get the idea down. I've got to re- refine the idea. I've got to, you know, make it perfect. I've got to send it out. I got to see if people like it. I got to see if, uh, what the reviews say. And then you start over right at the beginning again. So it's possible to kind of in a virtuous way, distract yourself into your grave, you know, um, uh, before you really, really, uh, take on the, the, the big, you know, beast in the room. So that's kind of what's on my mind. And, um, I'll just say I don't really know quite what the resolution of that is. You know, it should be possible. It should be possible to do both. And I think for people like us, uh, it probably is necessary to do both. You know, just to say I banish writing, I'll never do it again. I think that's probably the weaker move, but uh, it may just be like everything else we've talked about—a matter of proportion. Yeah, you know, it's funny you talk about uh, like these kind of brief moments where you're in touch with kind of a more compassionate or awake, um, mental state or mode of being and how fleeting those moments can be. Like I did, I've been doing a lot of meditating. I've been doing a lot of meditating for a lot of years, but I think in, during the pandemic, maybe more so just cause I'm home and <laughs> might as well, um, seems like a good time to be sitting and, and getting quiet or whatever. And what I had happened to me just yesterday that illustrates this is that like, I had a pretty good sit, you know, they're, they're not all the same. Sometimes I'll have a sit where it's like, Ugh, that was a, dis-. I mean, they're usually messy, but sometimes they're extra messy. <laughs> and then I went through a sit yesterday where there were some nice stretches, you know, that's, that's usually the best it can get. You'll have some nice stretches where you're like, wow, I was actually like mm-hmm. concentrated and I, I felt a sense of spaciousness in between, you know, breaths or whatever. And, um, you know, kind of buoys you a little bit. And I finished up and I walked inside and my kids are there, my wife's there, and she starts talking to me about something. And it had to do with like COVID protocols and friends of ours who like went to a party or something. And I just like, all of a sudden, like without even realizing it was like, they think, you know, what are they doing? You know, I went into this like hypercritical mode where I was just, um, you know, dissecting <laughs> these behaviors and I caught myself and I was like, wow, that was fast. You know, <laughs> like I lost it almost immediately, you know, and I think it's this idea of being forgetful, you know, this constant forgetting and trying to improve the the time ratio between knowing and forgetting that is like a part of the project for me. I, maybe it's a part of the project for everyone. Yeah, it's really, I mean, the mind is a really deep, I mean, you know, it's, it's not a, a linear thing. I think that's, you know, for me, writing is, is, uh, it's it's a good way of kind of reminding ourselves that there's a I don't know there's a kind of knowing that isn't everyday knowing and we can access it that that's about as far as I could go with that like you did you know you uh, you know we talked earlier about my feeling and I think you agree that 
you, you feel like a better person on the page than off. Um, that's interesting, you know, because the, because you made that story or that novel, you know, you, you did make it. So that opens up all kinds of doors about who, when we talk about me or you, who is that, you know, is it the person who blurts something out? Is it the person who works on something for four years? I mean, I think the truth is it's, it's obviously both, you know? So I think, I think maybe, you know, especially in this time where it seems like there's such a premium on being sure of shit, you know, and, and being on a team and deriding the other team. I think it's really useful to do something that is just consistently humbling, you know? I mean, and humbling in, in the real sense, not like when somebody wins an award and they say they're humbled, but humble in the sense that you, you know, you fuck up all the time. And even when you think, you know, your, your pride says, this is a good story. It turns out it isn't, you know, or, or it is a good story and it goes out in the world and no, nobody really likes it. Or, I mean, or, or just the beautiful thing of being caught in a, tech, a technical puzzle. You know, the the thing that I've come to really appreciate is that, um, you know, a good day is a day on which you're reminded that, one, you're multiple selves, and two, that you're not maybe the same thing. You're not reliably anybody, you know, and, and you're not, you're not um, above the fray. The fray is going to get you. So, the, the, you know, art is almost like a relatively low-cost way of, destabilizing our you know our vision of ourselves as being in control and perfect and and permanent and and even being clear-sighted you know if you're a writer who revises you know your, your clear sight is it's negotiable you know so so that's uh, that's what i like about it well the last thing i'm going to uh ask you about uh before i let you go is this idea that there are two things uh, that separate writers who publish from those who don't. You know, these are kind of conclusions that you've come to over the course of your teaching life, working with a lot of talented people. Um, can you talk about what those two things are? You know, the, what separates the writers who publish from those who don't? Well, if I can remember, it was uh, coming from a good family. That's one. No. <laughs> uh, having a lot of money. No, I mean, I think, I, correct me if I misremember, but I think it's just... Um, you know, revising, learning to meaningfully revise, and then also being able to uh, uh, honor causality, you know, to make A cause B. Uh, the first one we talked about a lot, and that that's obvious. But the second one is maybe, um, you know, it's, well, first of all, it, it, it comes out of a certain aesthetic assumption about the story, which everyone may not share. But if you talk about the classic short story, it's really just a little machine to cause stuff you know and and we we feel it as disciplined and meaningful to the extent that the causation is discernible you know that that's really the truth so uh and it's it's kind of like hollywood stuff i mean it's or vaudeville you just um you have a first scene does it cause something to happen if so does the writer recognize it and then let that thing happen uh that's easy supposedly but it's actually the i think it's the hardest thing that there is to do and mostly, you know, when I see uh, student stories that aren't working, it's either that there's no causality. You know, the whole story is just a series of riffs that the person wanted to do um, or the causality is kind of cross-footed. Like A doesn't really cause B. B happens, but it just seemed to happen separately from A. Uh, so this is, you know, maybe a little banal and a little technical, but I find myself doing a lot of, of talking about cause and effect. You know, does does the um, does the first part of the story lead? to the second part when you read the second part of the story does your mind kind of go back to the first part and go oh yeah you know so so that's again it's that is a i think uh good causality is also 
a direct result of revision, you know. And I, you know, I always feel a little bit like I, I'm a little too engineering-ish about this. So I don't mean to say I don't. I really don't mean to, you know, pronounce a manifesto or, or even a set of principles. I'm just observing that when we, uh, one of the really reliable feelings of delight that we get when we read a story is when we feel that the non-randomness of it, you know, the the, the um, uh, or to say it another way, the writer has kind of set the table and cause certain expectations to arise and then she exploits them, you know, and that's really just kind of, um, it's a, it's a beauty of the form. It might also be kind of a burden of the form, you know, that you, um, if I say once upon a time, uh, you know, there was a boy who, uh, who could fly. Well, we've just, you know, we, it could have been any story when I said once upon a time, as soon as I say there was a boy who could fly, I've eliminated a bunch of stories that it can't be. And I've made his ability to fly, sort of the you know the the elephant in the room that's a mixed metaphor but but you know so so that that i think causality is really hard and i think it's worth talking about it feels a little bit um i don't know i I, i've had some times where it felt like students were resisting it because it seems so kind of babyish you know causality but again if you look at the great stories that we love they that's almost all they are you know there's a in the book there's a story called um uh the darling by chekhov and I do this analysis where almost every line in the story is there to serve this uh, this causation. And we don't feel it that way. That's one of its strengths is we see it. We feel it as just sort of a beautiful anecdote. But actually, if you if you study it, it's it's a machine. It's a, And it's a machine that actually doesn't – it's not a realist machine. There's no reality in the world that's ever been that uh, pre-selected and, and winnowed down and, uh, you know, in which three-month periods aren't narrated and so on. So. Yeah, it's these elegant constructions, you know, um, and yes. kind of goes back to the what we were talking about earlier, where these the the beautiful fictions tend to have like this really wonderful simplicity to them, but it takes some work maybe to arrive at that simplicity. Yeah, they they you get the feeling that they kind of know what they're about, and then so it's like an elegant, almost machine like simplicity through which somehow life. You know, the actual stuff of life comes through. Uh, and that second part, of course, is the that's the hard part. You know, it's, it's I think, you know, you can watch you watch TV these days and there's an amazingly uh, rewritten and highly causation inflected uh, stories. Uh, well, there's still a, another factor there. Is it, is it speaking to our actual experience, you know, in some way that and then even beyond that, is it speaking to our experience in a way that. And here we'd have to, each writer would have to fill in his or her own blank, you know. For me, I, I think stories are, um, I, I don't really care that much about documenting the way things are, but I like the moment when the reader feels that I see her and that we're in the same game together. And maybe it's even a little bit aspirational, like, um, you know, that moment when you read a story and it kind of jolts you awake for a little bit. So it's not, it's not an, uh, an observation or a documentary. It's more of an event. You know, it's like it's like a roller coaster. You know, you, you get off the roller coaster and you uh, you understand that the purpose of that was to kind of jolt you awake for a couple of minutes, and that's it. Actually, you know, you you can start to talk about it afterwards. You can describe it, but the real point of it was just that feeling that you got several times during and then as you as you stepped off. And I think that you know the highest level creative thought is just about that. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to mess somebody up in a good way. You know, and, and then just sort of walk off yeah it's like a, a heightened alertness mixed with slight nausea that's the effect that we're all going for <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
and you want to go on again. <laughs> right, right. Well, George, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm really happy to have the chance to have you back on the show and to talk with you uh, about this book. And I'm happy that you wrote it because it, it feels like a book, uh, as I said at the top of the conversation, that I was kind of hoping you'd write, I think. I realized that as I was reading it, and I think there are going to be a lot of people who are thrilled um, to kind of go along for the ride and to learn from you and, and to learn what you've learned over the years in terms of how to go about doing this work. So I appreciate your generosity uh, of time, and I wish you well in the in the rest of this pandemic, and, and uh, I wish you a happy new year. It's got to be better than last year. Fingers crossed. You- you too, Brad. And, and let me just say too that th- thank you for having me on. And this, uh, the way you run this podcast, is a perfect uh, demonstration of the stuff I'm talking about in the book about presence and about, you know, true communication. And and I think, you know, what seems to run you is genuine curiosity about the topic. And that's also something as writers we can think about. If if we're writing something, and we already know the answer, we probably shouldn't do it. But to be genuinely curious about it. Uh, is you know the reader feels that and i certainly felt that today with you so thank you very much okay guys there you go that is george saunders he is the author of 11 books including the novel lincoln and the bardo which won the 2017 man booker prize as well as several critically acclaimed story collections including civil war land in bad decline 10th of december pastoralia and in persuasion nation His latest book is called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. It's available now from Random House. You can find George Saunders online at georgesaundersbooks.com. One more time, the new one is called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. Go get your copy immediately. The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available to you for free. It's nearly 700 episodes. You can listen online via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. New episodes go live every Wednesday and sometimes every Sunday, but every Wednesday for sure. You can support the show over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Throw a couple of bucks in the hat over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. If you want to email me, the email address for the show is letters at other PPL Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It, too, is free. Go get the app wherever you get apps. The Other People with Brad Listy app. It's a good app. It's a great way to listen to the show. If you would like to get some Other People gear, you can do that over at the show's official website, otherppl.com. Just go to otherppl.com and click on the T-shirt in the left sidebar, Get yourself some gear, a t-shirt, a tank top, a sweatshirt, what have you. Get some other people apparel. It is good stuff. Next up on the program, let me see what we got going on. My guest, I believe, is going to be... What do I got here? Oh yeah, Jill Adamson, a lovely Canadian author. I had a good time with her, so stay tuned. 